0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read verses 13 to 17. This is the Word of the Lord. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evil doers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction, its correction, its training in righteousness, its rebuke. Father, we pray as we come to this word that you would help us, that you would feed us, that you would strengthen us, that we might be good citizens of this nation and good citizens of your kingdom. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there are two very important passages in Scripture about how Christians are to relate to their government and the government's God-given authority. There is uh, this one that we just read, and uh, there is Romans 13 verses one through seven. Let me read that for you as we work through this passage. Romans 13: "Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God." Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they will have opposed, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil." Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And so it is, without a doubt, the duty, we learn from these two passages and many others in Scripture, it's the duty of Christians to submit to legitimate authority, right? And the, author, and the authority of our civil government is, as the, Paul, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans, it is legitimate authority because it's established by whom? It's established by God himself. So to resist such authority is to resist God. But much more needs to be said about that is the submission of Christians to the governing authorities absolute, right? Is there any time when it's proper for Christians to rise up against the governing authorities as the fathers, for example, of our own nation did, ultimately leading to the Revolutionary War? Um, Is there such a thing as civil disobedience and can the Christian engage in it? Um, John Frame helpfully and briefly answers these questions this way. He says, in general, civil disobedience becomes necessary when the civil law stands in the way of moral obligation. Okay, for Christians, I can write, this is an aside he puts in this answer, for Christians, I can write only from a Christian point of view, for my heart belongs to Jesus. Jesus. Moral obligations come ultimately from God. Thus, civil disobedience is necessary when there is a conflict between the law of God and the law of human beings. There are many examples of this in the Bible. It's illuminating to study in this connection. Exodus 1, 15 through 20 is the example of the Hebrew midwives disobeying the command of Pharaoh. There's Joshua 2 when Rahab disobeys to protect the spies from the, uh, the king of Jericho. There's Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. Where Daniel and uh, his, his brothers resist the wicked decrees of King Nebuchadnezzar. There's Acts 4 and Acts 5, where the apostles uh, resist the commands of the governing authorities of the time. He goes on, he says, In most cases, to be sure, Scripture urges Christians to be good citizens, Obedient to the ruling authorities, but in cases of conflict, we must obey God rather than men. Acts five twenty nine. Right. So I want to make sure that we that we are uh, we understand that. But but then also to circle back and say that the general posture. So I want to, I want us to understand that there's times to disobey and times where we're obligated to. But but the general posture of the Christian should be one of submission to lawful authority. We should be submitters. We should be passive. Right? And and one of those lawful authorities is that of our government. We obey laws when those laws don't require us to act against God's laws written in Scripture. Okay? And And praise the Lord, many of the laws... Um, many of the laws we have are derived directly from Scripture. There's still a residue of Scripture in our legal system, though it changes more and more. Um, there may come a time, for instance, when the clergy are considered enemies of the state if they refuse to sanction and solemnize same-sex marriage. Right? That may come quicker than we think. That will be a case where I will be obligated to obey God rather than men, and I'll have to face the consequences, right? And our church will have to face the consequences. But again, circling back, the general posture of the Christian is to be one of submission to lawful authority. We should be the best citizens of this nation because of that. Let me tell you about a little city called Magdeburg. Has anybody heard of Magdeburg? Magdeburg. As you can guess, it's in Germany. During the 1500s, when the Reformation was reshaping all of the European nations, Magdeburg Magdeburg had a visit from a man named Martin Luther. And while there in 1524, Luther preached to the citizens of Magdeburg and the city declared for the Reformation. Now, that was happening all over Europe at the time. Cities were declaring for the Roman Catholic Church or for the Reformed Church or for the Lutheran Church, right? And so this city of Magdeburg declared for the Reformation, rejected their Roman Catholic rule. In subsequent years, Magdeburg became a stronghold for Protestantism Protestantism, and uh, apparently they were the first major city to publish Martin Luther's writings, so very instrumental in the spread of the Reformation as well. Well, on May 15th, 1548, Emperor Charles V enacted his Augsburg Interim, and this law was an attempt to force Protestants back under traditional Roman Catholic beliefs, practices, and rule. Um, That's what Pastor Matt Truella writes. It demanded that the Lutherans, the cities that had declared for the Reformation, Lutherans go back to seven sacraments from two, that the church is returned to Roman worship, including transubstantiation. It called for rejection of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It required that the Pope be acknowledged as the head of the church by divine right, And hundreds of pastors were then imprisoned for not obeying that. Um, How did the city of Magdeburg fall? Truella writes, The men of Magdeburg refused to submit to Charles and to the Roman Catholic Church. Their consciences were resolute because of their fealty to Christ. And they stood their ground because they understood the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. So as part of their resistance to Charles V's decree they composed what's called the Magdeburg Confession. In that confession they lay out their reasons for resisting the government's laws, resisting Charles the Emperor's Augsburg Interim. And that confession has three main parts. The first part they assured they assured the government of their orthodoxy. We're just We're just deriving our our doctrine from Scripture. Um, They were were not some sort of crazy, crazy faction, um, but followed Luther. The last um, part is a warning and exhortation to all those who would take actions against them. So the last part, they're like, if you take action against us, this this is what will happen. The middle part lays out the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, which is a fancy way of of saying that we should see the Hebrew midwives and Daniel and the apostles and Rahab as examples of godly resistance. Okay? Yet right in the middle of that, there is this section, which is what came to mind when I was studying Peter's words in chapter 2 particularly when he says, submit yourselves to every human institution. Here's what the the guys, the pastors who wrote the Magdeburg Confession said. As for other matters relating to your rule, we will gladly render obedience. As much as we are able and we owe you, the profession of our religion has diminished nothing from it, so that much true dignity and encouragement for the obedience owed rather flows from it to, for you. For we teach that the Apostle Paul, that you are the vicarious minister of God for promoting good works, and that obedience is owed to you in this role just as to God, not only because of wrath and fear of your sword, but also because of conscience, that is, fear of the wrath and judgment of God." We can promise you this with the strength of a promise which is said about our ministry that we will give from our churches the greatest possible number of men who if they are able to enjoy their own religion through you will declare their obedience to you in all owed and upright duties and loyalty without hypocrisy out of true love. Not so much love receiving fruit from you as love of you yourself. Perhaps more than all those whom you say are obedient to you, so that you mistakenly mark us for the crime of contumacy and rebellion. So, in other words, as long as the government allows us to live with our consciences bound to the word of God and do not force us against that word, we will be the best and most submissive of all citizens. That's. The sweet spot. Why? Because we and only we believe that the authority of the government is given by God. That it is a minister of God. That the sword was given to her by God. And so to obey our governing authorities is to obey God. Insofar so far as Nero legislated what was in accord with God's law, Christians could fully submit to Nero. If Nero's legis- if he ne- legislated what forced God's people to break God's law, Christians could no more submit to him than to the devil. So when the Apostle Peter, when, when he exhorts the persecuted and downtrodden people of Christ to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, He is telling Christians to be submissive to government. Yes, all of the qualifications I laid out previously are necessary, but the general posture should be uh, we should have toward God's minister, the government, is submission. We should pay our taxes. We should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We should be willing to, to be drafted into the military if we are men. And the war is just. Right? We should follow OSHA rules at the workplace because the government is trying to protect her people. Right? We should get the inspector out to our construction site without grumbling and complaining. Because inspection I mean, right, inspection is a far cry from having to reinstitute the mass in our churches. Right, who was, who was the governing authority when Peter wrote this letter? Well, I've mentioned him already. Peter was eventually martyred by this emperor, Nero, who was no friend of Christianity. It is likely that Peter wrote this letter from Rome not long before he was crucified. So the apostle is exhorting those who are actively being persecuted, even as he is being actively persecuted, to submit to every human institution. Kings and governors, kings and governors. When fires broke out in Rome, ravaging a, a large part of the city, Nero determined that he needed to get rid of the Christians in order to make the fires stop. Tacitus, the first century Roman senator and historian, describes the situation this way So far, the precautions taken were suggested by human prudence. Now means were sought for appeasing deity. An application was made to the Sibylline books, at the injunction of which public prayers were offered to Vulcan, Ceres, and Persephone. While Juno was propitiated by the matrons, first in the capital, then at the nearest point of the seashore, where water was drawn for sprinkling the temple and image of the goddess. Ritual banquets and all-night vigils were celebrated by women in the married state. But neither human help nor imperial munificence nor all the modes of placating heaven could stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. First then, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson, listen to this, as for hatred of the human race. And derision accompanied their ends. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses and when daylight failed were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the habit of a charioteer or mounted on his car. Hence, in spite of a guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed for the welfare of the state, not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man." Right, so Nero was taking on this. Even the citizens of Rome became pitying toward the, the Christians because of the, the violence with which Nero was, was persecuting them. And in that context, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or governors as sent by him. So that was a serious command that the apostle was giving here. That was a command that was meant to quell all of the anarchists in the midst of the Christians. Christians are not anarchists, believing that government is a minister of God. We're advocates of right government, right. And in those conditions, we are to be submissive, respecting the states and calling, and they their calling to dole out as the apostle Paul now, or Peter now puts it. Punishment to evildoers and praise to those who do right. That's the basic, basic work that the government is to do. That's the very purpose of government. The statement is found in Peter and in Paul. The government, as a minister of God, is called to punish evil and to praise good, and they have the power of the sword, which means they have physical punishment at their disposal to make sure they do that task. But even in making that statement, the government is to punish what is evil and to praise what is good takes some fleshing out, right? Why? Because much of what our society thinks is good is evil, and much of what it thinks is evil is actually good. Gay marriage, our society said, is categorically good. God calls homosexuality an unnatural abomination. Which side do we go with? We say freedom of religion is a categorical good, right? But secularists say religion is a positive evil that gets us into fights all the time. So who's right? Who's, who gets to define the terms? Well, according to Scripture and according to natural law, all laws and the very concept of law descend from the one lawgiver, God Himself. And if the authority of government is given by God, as the Apostle Paul says, then God has a right over that entity. The only source of properly defining good and evil, therefore, is God Himself. Otherwise, Otherwise, we're left to the whimsical ideas of individual men. One says my deviant sexuality is good and any resistance to it is evil. Another says that laws need to yield to my sense of self, transgenderism, rather than yield to biological facts. Another says that killing infants even several days after they're born should be allowable and it maximizes our compassion toward humanity. Right, another says that there should be no ability for man to own property. Another, by virtue of his secularist environmentalist worldview that we must punish those who drive cars that get less than 12 miles to the gallon. We, though, say that God has objectively defined good and evil. Nature speaks to it, and God's Word clearly defines it. It is objective, whereas if we say that that man is the determiner of what is right and wrong, good and evil, we are merely left to the whims of a man. Right? Hitler thought it was a positive good to wipe out the Jewish people. Mao thought he was doing mankind a service by starving to death tens of millions of his own people. Likewise, people today think it's a positive good to kill babies in the womb, especially those babies that have birth defects. People today think sodomy is a human right. People today think that killing civilians in warfare is just fine. Right, So no, we, we hold to Scripture because in the end we know them to be the definition of good and evil by the God who is in Himself all good. Right? Whatever is contrary to His perfections is that which is evil. And this is, that is a glorious and objective reality. The Apostle Peter continues his exhortation with these words. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So he's, he's just exhorted the persecuted church to submit themselves to kings and governors. He's defined their proper role, punishing evil, praising good, and now he tells Christians that they are to do right, and by doing so they will silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, to give an example, the way we oppose abortion is to go to the clinic to turn people away, to advocate for for righteous uh, legislation, and more broadly to pursue fruitfulness and to raise a godly seed, but it's not to practice murderous violence against those who kill children in abortion, right? We do not wrestle the swords from the hands of the state as individuals, That would be to do wrong. It would be to oppose murder by becoming murderers, right? What we are to do is to submit ourselves to God's laws. We are to, as the text says, do right, right? And that's a powerful weapon. It's a powerful weapon. By doing right, we silence the ignorance of foolish men. Right? By doing right, by showing ourselves to be those who love and honor life, by caring for the sick, by raising families, by having children, by training up our children, by respecting the image of God and man, we will be showing forth the utter bankruptcy right of the violent and merciless ignorance of fools. What's the end of, of, of abortion? It's death. What is the end of one-child policy in China? It's death. What is the end of secularist education. It's angry and selfish children. What is the end of gay marriage? Fruitlessness and decay. What is the end of transgenderism? A complete denial of reality, right? Their laws lead to death. And so by countering all of the wickedness of our culture with the positive good of obeying God's commands, we will be a living testimony to the good and glorious ways of God. Now, if any of you mothers are doubting that your fruitfulness, having more children, will be a positive good, if you doubt that, you're being selfish. Fruitfulness is good not simply for the fact that your life will be a rejoinder to the hatred of fruitfulness in our culture, but you will be that much more dependent on God to obey His commands. Has giving up your back for the birth of your children been worth it? Right? Are you living for this life or for the life to come? Are you seeing the larger battle that we're in the midst of, the one where fruitfulness is the way for you to silence the ignorance of foolish men? The one where you manifest in your very body the cosmic warfare that has been going on since the seed of the woman was, was prophesied to crush the head of the snake. Right to see the big picture. Let's do good, and by doing good, shut the mouths of the ignorant. Show them by your own heart and good choices that they have gone the way of selfishness. Show them the moral bankruptcy and utter terror of living life for any reason other than the glory of God himself. In other words, as, as the Apostle Peter puts it in verse 16, act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Those who think they are free to live for themselves, right? We might call that the, the wrong view of liberty, will find that they only had their wicked and deceitful heart to guide them down the path of life. Licentiousness is never freedom. It's bondage to a wicked God, lowercase g. But those Right? Those who have the freedom to live for God will find themselves led down the path of life by a good word. Right? They will find that slavery to God is glorious freedom. While those who think they are free will find themselves in the most terrible bondage. Right, As Bob Dylan put it, you've got to serve somebody. Right? It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. In other words, everyone is in bondage. Everyone is in bondage, either to self and your own petty sense of justice and good, or to God, the one who made heaven and earth. Right? No man is autonomous. No man has a carte blanche freedom because his heart is going to drag him about wherever it wills. One other thing should be said about this verse, we're not to use our freedom as a covering for evil. How would we do that? How would we use our freedom as a covering for evil? We would do that whenever we think that we are free because of our faith in Christ to break God's law. Right, it would be a situation like the Apostle Paul describes in Romans six, when we would sin so that grace could abound, right? Because we are forgiven in Christ, we would continue to pursue sins because ultimately God is glorified in forgiving sins. And God gets more glory the more sins that are forgiven. No, it's not the way it works our freedom in Christ, or rather, rather our slavery to God should never be used to justify going against his law. Do we do that? Well, anytime you plowed ahead with what you wanted and thought to yourself, yes, this is a terrible thought, God's just going to have to forgive me for that. That would be to use your freedom in Christ as a covering for your sin. And in particular, given the context of this passage, that would be the case in how we relate to our governing authorities. We cannot say, because we are Christians and Christ is our king, I recognize no authorities on the earth. Your freedom in Christ doesn't give you the ability to throw other authorities away, not even the authority of your husband. Wives. so to conclude the section the apostle Peter writes this machine gun synopsis honor all people love the brotherhood fear God honor the king or appreciate what you can about all men with loving without loving their sin place at the center of your affection the church the household of God fear God as the first thing and respect all lawful authorities so I'll close here with with what Matthew Henry says on those four things. Matthew Henry says this, the apostle concludes his discourse concerning the duties of subjects with four admirable precepts. One, honor all men. A due respect is to be given to all men. The poor are not to be despised. The wicked must be honored, not for their wickedness, but for any other qualities such as wit, prudence, courage, eminency of employment, or the hoary head. Abraham, Jacob, Samuel, the prophets, and the apostles never scrupled to give due honor to bad men. Second, love the brotherhood. All Christians are a fraternity, united to Christ the head, alike disposed and qualified, nearly related in the same interest, having communion with one another and going to the same home. They should therefore love one another with an especial affection. Three, fear God. With the highest reverence, duty, and submission. If this be wanting, none of the other three duties can be performed as they ought. And then fourth, honor the king with that highest honor that is peculiarly due to him above other men. Amen? Amen.